0: Would you join with me in prayer? Well, Father in heaven, we pray that you would bless this time where your word is heralded, where it is proclaimed and preached. And I pray, Lord, that you would be faithful to your promise to make it effective, that it would not return useless, it would not return vain or void, but it would accomplish the purpose for which it left your mouth. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen Weak knees and lift drooping heads. and I pray that you would be glorified. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you got your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to turn with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 13. 2 Chronicles chapter 13. What a lovely way that that song that we just sang ended. Singing about when the race is complete and how we will be standing in victory with Christ. And we will joyfully utter the words, not I, but Christ. Not I, but Christ. Now, why is it that we can sing those words with confidence, that we can look to the future? That when all is done, when the race is complete, we will be standing with Christ, victorious. Certainly not enough ourselves, but we will say, not I, but Christ. Why is it that we can confidently know that that is true. Now you may have felt at some point as if you have no hope. Today you might actually feel as if you have no hope. You might have felt at some time or even now that you have no reason for confidence. Nothing to point to for why you know things will turn out. No reason to believe that you will be okay. Okay. Now, in that dark place, you might say, my hope is that God is with me, that God is sovereign and he is in complete control of all things and and he is with me. That is my hope and my confidence. Now, perhaps those words have streamed through your head in times of despair, but then maybe they could also be then followed by these words. Why am I sure that that's true? Why can I claim that God is with me? Why can I sing that God is with me for my good and that he will work all things for my good? How can I know that God will be with me? Is God with and for everyone? Now how would you respond to yourself or even to another person who questioned your confidence that God is with you for your good. Working all things for your good. When they say, or maybe even your own soul says, what reason do you have? What plea would you give for why God would hear your plea and be with you? What's your claim for that confidence that God is with you for your good? Working all things for for your good? What is your claim for that confidence? What is your plea before God when you are in that distress? There's different reasons or different ways a person might feel hopeless or in distress. Perhaps it's when you're caught in a great sin that you're more aware than ever of your, your sinfulness and the wickedness of your heart. Now in that moment, what hope do you have? And what is then the confidence for that hope? Now perhaps it's that you are caught in a great storm. When perhaps your life is in great danger. Maybe you have no reason to believe that your life or health will endure. Maybe when all that you've worked for looks like it will all be wiped out. You feel absolutely powerless to keep disaster from happening or even stop once it has fallen upon you. Now, dear Christian, when you are faced with problems which show how helpless you are, you do have a plea before God. You have a claim. You have an appeal. But it's not an appeal. It's not a claim that... It's not a plea that comes naturally to your soul. It is in the Lord Jesus Christ. God has not left you with coming up with reasons for why the Lord should hear you. Why the Lord should be with you. Why the Lord should forgive you. Why he should help you. Why he should turn all the events of your life for your benefit. You're not left with coming up with those reasons as to why God should hear you. In fact, you're actually forbidden for coming up with those reasons. But that doesn't mean you're without a reason, without a plea. In fact, you are instructed to use the plea that God has himself given to you. So the nation of Judah, freshly divided from the nation of Israel, themselves found themselves in the passage that we were about to read they found themselves facing certain destruction there was no reason to believe that they would survive but god worked in their king king abijah who was the official son of david at the time to rally them to trust the claims that god himself had provided and even sworn and in trusting in those promises they were rescued so if you would, read with me 2 Chronicles chapter 13. We'll read first the first 14 verses. 2 Chronicles 13. In the 18th year of King Jeroboam, Abijah began to reign over Judah. He reigned for three years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Micaiah, the daughter of Uriel of Gibeah. Now there was war between Abijah and Jeroboam. Abijah went out to battle, having an army of valiant men of war, 400,000 chosen men. And Jeroboam drew up his line of battle against him with 800,000 chosen mighty warriors. Then Abijah stood up on the Mount Zemarim, that is in the hill country of Ephraim, and said, hear me, O Jeroboam, and all Israel. Ought you not know that the Lord God of Israel gave the kingship over Israel forever to David? And his sons by a covenant of salt. Yet Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, a servant of Solomon, the son of David, rose up and rebelled against his Lord. And certain worthless scoundrels gathered about him and defied Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, when Rehoboam was young and irresolute and could not withstand them. And now you think to withstand the kingdom of the Lord in the hands of the sons of David? Because you are a great multitude and have with you the golden calves that Jeroboam made, for your for your god for gods have you not driven out the priests of the lord the sons of aaron and the levites and made priests for yourselves like the people of other lands whoever comes for ordination with a young bull or seven rams becomes a priest of what are not gods but as for us the lord is our god and we have not forsaken him we have priests ministering to the Lord who are sons of Aaron, Levites, for their service. They offer to the Lord every morning and every evening burnt offerings and incense of sweet spices set out the, and set out the showbread on the table of pure gold and care for the golden lampstands that its lamps may burn every evening. For we keep the charge of the Lord, our God, but you have forsaken him. Behold, God is with us at our head. And his priests with their battle trumpets to sound the call to battle against you. O sons of Israel, do not fight against the Lord, the God of your fathers, for you cannot succeed. Jeroboam had sent an ambush around to come upon them from behind. Thus his troops were in front of Judah, and the ambush was behind them. And when Judah looked, Behold, the battle was in front and behind them. And they cried to the Lord and the priests blew the trumpets. Thus far the word of the Lord. So two groups of people line up for battle. Both are relatives. Both with many thousands of soldiers who can actually trace their families back to Jacob. The man whose name God had changed to Israel. Now do they both have a plea? Do they both have a claim before God? Who can count on the Lord being with them? Now, perhaps neither of them have a plea. Neither can call on the Lord and trust that he is with them. Judah, for sure, the smaller of the two, is definitely left with no plea but the oaths of God. Now, that brings us to the first point. God's people have no plea but his oaths his promises, the things that he has sworn. Now God has arranged his people for his people Judah under the son of David, who's Abijah at this moment. He has arranged, he set up this moment that they would have no plea but God's oaths. They were literally surrounded by enemies who were wanting to utterly destroy them. Surrounded in front and in back, there was... No chance of even changing their minds and retreating or fleeing. They were stuck. And I want you to see here that human might failed as a plea. Human might failed as a plea. The chronicler let us know that Abijah, king of Judah, that his army was half the size of that of Rehoboam's army. So the reason for confidence and courage could not have been because of the size of their army. Not on human strength. There's not a way to... So there, there is a way to trust in human might and wealth and health. And it actually look like that you are trusting in the Lord. You know, I trust in this army which the Lord has given me. I know God will rescue me. I know that I will be okay because of these wonderful things that God has given to me. This is the proof that God is with me and that he will continue to be with me. These things that he has given to me. Now that confidence, the temptation for that confidence is actually even removed from Abijah. He's removed even that temptation. Abijah couldn't trust in his strength and even give God credit for it. I trust in this army that God has given me. So, even looking at God given human might would lead Abijah and all Israel and all Judah to despair. Now, the Lord often did this. He often put His covenant people in this situation, His nation, the family of God. He often put them in a position where they did not have even the opportunity to put trust in even the gifts of God. Sometimes, He put them in this position because of discipline, because of sin, to shape their hearts and to bring them into repentance. Other times it wasn't. It was just to form them and shape their hearts so that they would not, as the psalmist would say, put their trust in horses or princes. And our Lord is still the same Lord, the same shepherd with the same heart toward his people. He loves to give good gifts to his people, even temporary gifts like jobs and health and food and clothing and peace and safety and bank accounts and intelligence and education. But God will also remove sometimes even the possibility of his dear children trusting in this. Trusting in God's plan for the future or even God's presence based on these things which you might call human might. And in those moments, the intention of God is not to shape our hearts to know that sometimes we can't trust in those things. No, it's rather that we can never trust in those things even when we have them. Even when the barn or the bank is full. Even when your Fitbit praises you. Even when those things are are great, there's no reason for confidence that all will be well or that the Lord is with you. He often brings us face to face with the reality that all we have in this world is either failing now or definitely could in a moment. And that doesn't mean we cannot have hope in the care of the Lord and in the presence of the Lord. It just means that when we defend that hope, When our own souls ask us, well, why are you trusting that the Lord is with you? Or when other people say, well, why are you trusting that the Lord is with you? It means that we can't turn to those things and say, because of these things that he has given to me. So human might has failed as a plea for Abijah, but human righteousness has also failed as a plea. As a reason for this confidence that the Lord will be with them for their good. Human righteousness. First Kings 15 summarizes Abijah's reign in this way. He walked in all the sins that his father did before him. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father. So the difference between these two nations, these two armies, was not that one was righteous and the other one was wicked. Both nations were actually characterized, summarized, By wickedness and rebellion against the Lord, the God of their fathers. God also did this in Israel's history over and again. He brought them face to face with their own sinfulness. He showed them that they were no different than the nations which God drove out of Canaan, where God lovingly put Israel. So if the plea, if the claim was to human strength, Judah had no claim. And if the, if the plea, the, the claim was to human righteousness, neither of those nations had any plea that God would be with them. Now this too is how our good shepherd shepherds his people, even today, even us. He allows us to come face to face with our fallenness and our weakness and our sinfulness. To see how great is our sin against him. To see how prone to sin that we are. To see that even since our conversion, our sin is is still great. Sometimes that shows up as a falling into sin which you thought you were above falling into. A sin which the bad Christians fall into. But which you are strong enough not even to fall into or even be tempted Sure, you may dabble in other respectable sins and have a comfortable level with these sins that you don't really feel the need to wage war against them. And when you fall headlong into one of these more tragic sins, brothers and sisters, when this happens, what is not true is that you became sinful, but that God permitted the sin which was already in your heart to become full grown and give birth to, to death, as James puts it. Sometimes that shows up as coming right to the edge of a cliff and God reaching in with his mighty hand and his outstretched arm to stop you in your tracks right as you took that final step which would have put you over the cliff. And to use that illustration, God then suspends you right there So that you can stare at the long drop and the jagged rocks and the dead bodies at the bottom of the cliff. Which you certainly would have joined if God had not mercifully grabbed you. What is not true is that only then did you have no plea before God in your human righteousness. Not even in the righteousness which he has graciously worked in you. Long before that moment when you became face to face with your sin and every point thereafter, you had no plea. You had no plea before that great sin and you have no no plea afterwards. No plea in your righteousness, not even in the righteousness that God gave you. Jesus tells a parable that draws our attention to this very question of a claim, a plea before God. We find it in Luke 18 verse 9. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. I want you to notice, brothers and sisters, that that Pharisee was thankful to God. His plea was in the righteousness which God had worked in him. I'm thankful to God that I'm not like the tax collector, he said. Thanks be to God. To God alone be the glory. Soli der gloria would have been tattooed on his chest. That was his plea. The righteousness that God worked in him. Thank God. God to to God the glory. And he was condemned. The tax collector had no plea. He had none. None in his righteousness. Yet brothers and sisters, he did have confidence enough to call on the name of the Lord his God for mercy. And he, not the Pharisee, was declared righteous by God. He could have confidence that God was with him to bless him. And so we see that the tax collector was actually not without a plea. His plea was in the oaths sworn by God. We actually read these oaths that God swore to Solomon at the founding of this temple, didn't we? If my people humble themselves and pray toward this temple and call on me for mercy, I will hear them and I will forgive and I will be for them for their good. And so Judah was without a plea in this battle, except for the oath sworn by God himself. And brothers and sisters, so it is with you in your dark moments. And so it is for our church or any other church, the people of God. We have no plea except for the oaths that God has sworn. Let's take a look at the two oaths that that Abijah turns his people's attention to. And that brings us to our second, second point, which is you have hope. If you cling to God's royal oath to David, you have hope if you cling to God's royal oath to David. Now, why could Abijah of the smaller and equally sinful people claim that God would be with them for their good? And Jeroboam could not. Because of God's oath sworn to his great grandfather, David. You see this in verses 5 through 7. He says to Israel, don't you know that God gave the kingship to David by a covenant of salt forever? Now this is a rare moment for Abijah, a rare moment of clarity. And he preaches, he heralds the promise over both Israel and Judah, which is meant to drain confidence out of Israel and to push it into the hearts of the Judeans. God uses his words to call Judah to have hope because of the oaths which God has sworn to David. And whatever man later on would, was the son of David, the official heir to David's throne. In 1 Kings 15, which we already read, that summarized Abijah's reign, it said this. Nevertheless, uh, uh, because of his sin, nevertheless, For David's sake, the Lord, his God, gave him a lamp in Jerusalem, seeing uh, his sons after him and establishing Jerusalem. This promise was not only for whoever was the current son of David, but whoever clung to him, whoever had a portion with him. Do you remember when Israel rebelled against the sons of, of David? Do you remember what they said? What Portion do we have in David? We don't want to share in what David has. Now the chronicler and God want Israel and everyone who hears that to tremble at those words. The scariest words that you could say. I want nothing to do with the son of David. Now the Lord owed no one a covenant. He owed no one good promises. He owes no one promises to be with them for their good. He owes no one promises of forgiveness and steadfast love. Love that's not overturned. God owed no one the promises of treating them as sons and daughters even when they sin. Because all have sinned and are condemned before God without a plea. You aren't aren't born with the promise that God will be with you for your good. You're not born with the promise that if you repent, God will forgive you. You're not born with that. That's not something that you possess. God doesn't owe that to you and he doesn't give that. No one is owed such a promise. But God? God swore an oath to Abraham that he would be his God and that he would make out of him a great people, a great family, a great Nation And out of him would come kings. God swore an oath to David many years later that it would be from him that God would bring those kings of God's covenant. God swore to David that he would never lack a son to reign over Israel. And that God would treat those sons as his own sons. God swore that David's kingdom, David's throne would be eternal. And that whoever shared in it would not be put to shame. Brothers and sisters, friends, you do not get to pick the promises that God makes. You don't get to tell God to make promises or expect Him to. You can't assume that God has made promises. Now the reason why God gives great warnings in Scripture about careless oaths is that He makes no careless oaths. He's not careless about His oaths. You don't get to pick the promises God makes. If he graciously decides that you hear promises, you trust them. If you hear God make a promise, entrust yourself to that promise, rather than assuming he's made another one, or assuming you can make one for him. So his promise was to David... And the son of David after him. And to all who had a portion in David. All who shared in David's reign. Who entrusted themselves to the promise that God made to David. Not looking for other promises. But hearing that God has made promises to David. Entrusting themselves to the promises that God has made. To David and the son of David and all who are in him. And so those who had separated themselves from the son of David, they also forfeited the promises, the claims to God being their God, being with them for their good. They forfeited them. That's what Abijah is saying. You fools. You turned your back on the only promise that mattered. Don't fight against God. And so the northern tribes, even though they were called Israel, They were being preached at to let them know they could not claim God's help. Because they abandoned the son of David and all God's promises with it. Now I want you to remember what happened when Jeroboam and Israel rebelled against David. Do you remember? The faithful priests poured out of Israel and into Judah. Remember that? But also, people who loved the Lord and trusted the promise of David from the other tribes. They came pouring in as well. Faithful men from Israel's other tribes. The Benjamites never left David's son. Also the the people from Issachar and Asher and Ephraim and Gad and Manasseh and Simeon and Reuben and Zebulun and, and Dan. These people left their tribes, their homes, their land, their families, and they came to entrust themselves to the promises that God had sworn to David's sons. They heard the promises, the oaths that God had sworn to David, and they entrusted themselves to them. This is the plea that Judah had. God had made everlasting promises to David's line. He had made them promises of a fatherhood, of tender care. Discipline, yes, but enduring love as well. To be with them for their good. And that was the word that Abijah, in a moment of rare clarity, preached over them. So, dear brothers and sisters, that promise today is no less to you. Because the final son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ, has actually shed more light on the sweetness of that covenant to David and all who belong to the son of David. All who have a portion in him. All who are in him. And he will reign forever. Our Lord Jesus Christ. God himself. One of the three persons. Of the three in one trinity. He took on a human nature. He became a man. He actually joined the family of David. He lived perfectly. He lived righteously. He lived as a servant. And all he did was for the glory of God and the benefit of all who had a portion in him, all who trusted in him by faith. And brothers and sisters, his kingdom will be forever, and his kingdom will be everywhere. And when the world crumbles, when the world sways, when nothing lasts, the kingdom of our son of David endures forever. God is not with everyone for their good as father, he's not. Because all people stand naturally as enemies of God. No one has any claim to everlasting life and an everlasting kingdom. What we could claim based on our merits or what we naturally have is the wrath of God. But in the middle of all that darkness, a promise is heard. A promise is heralded. A promise to the son of David and all who are in him. All who have a portion by faith in that promise. So you have a plea, but it is in the oath sworn to David and his sons. This is what it means to pray in the name of Jesus, dear brothers and sisters. Oh Lord, I have no plea. I have no plea other than that I belong to Christ because of the covenant with Christ. So hear me because I belong to Christ, the the son of David. And God's answer to your prayer is pre-sworn dear brothers and sisters. And his answer is, I am with you. I hear you. I am your God. I am your father. I am working all these things for your good. I will not abandon you to your sin. I will not leave you in your sin. I will not forsake you. I will convict you of your sin. I will break your heart for your sin and I will pull you out of it. I will forgive and I will rescue. I will not let you be swept away like the nations and the peoples of the kingdoms. I will hold you fast. His answer is pre-sworn to your prayers. If the plea is made based on his oath to David... And David's great son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So our plea is in the royal oath that he made to David. But we'll turn our attention just for a short period of time to the other plea. Our third point is this. You have hope if you cling to God's temple oath to Aaron. Our hope, you have hope if you cling to God's temple oath to Aaron. So Abijah, again in uncharacteristic clarity, he continues... Not only is Judah distinguished from Israel because of the kingdom oath God has sworn to David, but also because of the temple oath God swore to Aaron. And you can see this in verses 8 through 12. Israel, under Jeroboam, abandoned the temple in Jerusalem when they abandoned David. The temple built by the son of David. But Judah clung to the temple promises that God swore. Not assuming that God would swear other promises as Jeroboam did. Jeroboam said, I'm going to make Dan and Bethlehem, make high places to, to worship the Lord there. And I'm, going to, I'm just going to assume or even tell God that he has to make other promises about these places of worship. These temples. But Judah clung to the promises God actually swore. And these promises God made, he made to Aaron. To Aaron. Hundreds of years earlier when Israel first left Egypt. God made promises that it would be his sons, which God would choose to minister in the temple. A temple that will be effective, unlike the temples of the nations. But Jeroboam and Israel just let people appoint themselves, whoever wanted to be, if it was, as if it was their own initiative. As if people can give themselves a priest it's not how it works. If you have a priest, if you have a sacrifice for your sins, it would be God who gave it to you. It would be God's idea, his initiative, because you're a rebel. God is not a rebel. You don't get to create the terms of peace. If there is peace between you and God, if there is forgiveness for your sins, God establishes it and he sets the terms. And that's the meaning of God selecting Aaron's family. Not that it was something special about them. What he was doing is he's he's saying that this is of God's initiative. He offers this. You don't offer it to God. And you can see the contrast in verses 9 through 10. He says, Have you not driven out the priests of the Lord, the sons of Aaron, and the Levites, who made priests for yourselves like the people of other lands? Whoever comes for ordination with a young bull or seven rams becomes a priest of what are not gods. But as for us, the Lord is our God and we have not forsaken him. We have priests ministering to the Lord who are sons of Aaron and Levites for their service. Whoever comes for ordination, exactly. I want forgiveness. I want God's presence for my good. I want him to bless me. So I will set the terms and expect God to accept my terms. Nonsense. You can expect nothing but judgment. This is why all other religions lead to judgment. They think they can set the terms. The promise of God to Aaron was an everlasting promise. Essentially that as long as there was need for animal sacrifice to be offered for sins, it would be his son's chosen by God to do it. Now I want you to notice, you may not have noticed but I want to point it out, we did not offer any animal sacrifices this afternoon. Did you notice that? And they were not offered because and they were not offered by Aaron's sons because they weren't offered. Now why is that? Now to use an illustration, it would be like a family who had a large debt of money Because of rebellion and foolish wickedness against the great king. And the king to which they owed that great debt, he agreed to make peace. And he set the terms of peace that allowed them to make interest payments on the debt every day. Now he could have called that debt immediately and he could have then thrown them all into prison, but he didn't. He graciously agreed to have the debt itself unpaid. But he, let, he selected one of the sons just to make interest payments every day. You, he said to that son, you are the one who will make these payments. And I promise that I will accept them. And this will, remain, will remind the whole family that it was not you who set the terms of peace. It was my offer. But then one day, the king's own son joins the family of rebels. And he doesn't just make interest payments, but he actually pays the debt. It's gone. Now, that interest paying son would now be insulting that king's son by trying now to keep making interest payments as if the debt's not paid. Oh, the debt's not paid. We got to. No, you're insulting my son. He paid the debt. Don't offer those interest payments anymore. Dear brothers and sisters, Aaron is that interest-paying son in this illustration. And the Lord Jesus Christ is the debt-paying son. His own body was the temple where the sacrifice for sins were made. And he was also the sacrifice. The sins of all who have a portion in him, all who trust in him, who trust the promise of God's covenant. Those sins were put on him. And he took our guilt in a way that a goat or a sheep or a bull in the temple merely pointed to. And he himself bore the wrath of God, the judgment that we uh, was, was owed on the cross for our sin. And he rose from the dead on the third day, which was the father saying, that debt is now paid. And that's why the scripture says that he himself is our Peace. He's our temple. He's our sacrifice. He's our, the fulfillment. He's the fulfillment, not the rejection, of the oath that God swore to Aaron. Now, the northern rebel kingdom of Israel, they rejected the oath sworn to Aaron. But the southern kingdom, Judah, they clung to that oath. And the Lord Jesus Christ fulfilled the oath that they were trusting in. So, the good news, the promise of God proclaimed that day in that battle, it was received and trusted when it hit their ears. God is with us for our good because of the covenant, because of the oath that God swore to David and to Aaron. We are just trusting and clinging to God's oaths. Now, dear brothers and sisters, there was a risk that men might change sides as those battle lines were drawn. 800,000 on one side, 400,000 on one side. There was a great risk that some men might turn and join the other army. And if you just had a worldly mindset, which army would it have been wise to defect from and go to? Oh, leave the 400, go to the 800,000. But which side was that promise being proclaimed to say, this is the right side to defect to? You leave the side that has no claim to the oaths of God and you run to the one that has the plea of God's oaths. The Israelites should have ran to Judah and clung to the promises of God. We'll continue reading as the battle goes on. Verse 15, then the men of Judah raised their battle shout. And when the men of Judah shouted, God defeated Jeroboam and all Israel before Abijah and Judah. The men of Israel fled before Judah and God gave them into their hand. Abijah and his people struck them with great force. So there fell slain of Israel 500,000 chosen men. Thus, the men of Israel were subdued at that time and the men of Judah prevailed because they relied on the Lord, the God of their fathers. And Abijah pursued Jeroboam and took cities from him. Bethel with its villages and Jeshaniah with its villages and Ephron with its villages. Jeroboam did not recover his power in the days of Abijah. And the Lord struck him down and he died. But Abijah grew mighty. And he took 14 wives and had 22 sons and 16 daughters. The rest of the acts of Abijah, his ways and his sayings are written in the story of the prophet Ido. Thus far the word of the Lord. Judah did not have the promise that they would win every battle just because they had the son of David in the temple. The promise is that the promises of God belonged to the son of David. And that God would be with them for their good and holiness. Sometimes that actually included them being defeated, defeated in battle. To bring their hearts back to him. To cling to, to, for God to keep a remnant of people who trusted in his covenant with David. So, dear brothers and sisters, in grief and despair, whether that when the world looks like it's against the church or when things look like they are stacked up against you individually, whether in disaster or heartbreak that's not caused by sin, or maybe your sin itself is the reason for despair and hopelessness, you have no plea Other than that, the promise is that God has sworn. And he has sworn them to those who trust in the great son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ. That he reigns over all kingdoms. And he reigns with a kingdom that will endure forever. Solid, eternal ground to stand on. And you will not be put to shame. The promise that he has paid for your sins... To bring you peace with God. You have hope. God is with you as a father for your good. If you gladly recognize you have no plea. Other than the oaths that he has sworn in his word. He will not leave you or forsake you. He is with you as your father. He is with you as your shepherd. To hold you, to not leave you in your sin. To permit disaster only if it would add to your knowledge of his love and eternal joy. To only bring grief and pain as part of keeping his oath. To treat you like a beloved son or daughter. You have no plea but the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it will hold. Dear unbelievers, you have no plea at all. You have no assurance that God will do to you other than what you deserve in your sin. So repent. Admit you have no plea. And entrust yourself to the promises that God has sworn in the Lord Jesus Christ. That he died for your sin and was raised on the third day to reign over all things. Embrace the promise of becoming God's child, shaped to love and obey him and being treated as that. So dear brothers and sisters in Christ, your, your plea is not that God has made you a better person now, now that you're a Christian. Not that you made good, biblical, righteous financial choices or life choices that make you less prone to disaster. Not that you have gone an unusually large amount of days without falling into that regular sin of yours. Not that you have good theology so that you're protected from sin and disaster. All of those things will fail as reasons for confidence in the Lord's help and presence. You have one plea. Your only plea is the promise that God has sworn in the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who are in Christ are a new creation, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That to all in Christ, He has given the right to be called sons and daughters. That He will never leave you nor forsake you. That He will hold you and keep you. That He will sanctify you. He will shape you more and more into the image of Christ. That He will bring you to repentance. That He will work all things to accomplish His eternal purpose for you. All things, good and bad, to open the eyes of your heart to His immeasurable love for those in Christ. That He will give you a portion in the Son of David. That will not fade or be corrupted or fail. That he loves you and always will. That was true of Judah. That is true of the church as a whole. And it is true of all those who trust in the gospel. So dear brothers and sisters, in your grief and despair, do not run to the other side even though it looks more strong and more likely to succeed do not abandon the lord you are not a fool to trust his promise and cling to the son of david let's pray father in heaven we thank you for your rich promises to us in christ and we know we have no claim to them in ourselves not that we deserve them or that we even eventually do We are grateful that you have made promises that you didn't need to make to us. We didn't deserve them. They weren't not something we could claim. Lord, we are grateful that we have heard them from your own word. And Lord, I pray that you would give us the faith to trust those promises. To unite us to your son, the great son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.